To the thirsty, I will give water as a gift from the spring of the water of life. Well, how's that for a baptism text? We didn't plan it this way. This just happened to be the day that worked for Marcus's baptism, and that just happened to be the second reading in what was appointed by the lectionary for today. It's all there. Thirsty people, water of life, gift, and promise. We couldn't have done better if we tried. When I'm talking to families about baptism, I tend to speak about promises, because that's what the baptismal service is, really. One promise after another. There's the promise of the parents to raise their child in the faith. There's the promise of the community to offer support and help the child grow in his life in Christ. Through it all, there is the promise of God, that this person is called by name as God's own, bound to Christ, held in love, part of God's own family now and forever. Marcus is surrounded by promises this morning, but of course, so are we all. Because the great promise that is spoken over him today of God's unending grace, mercy, and love is the same one that holds each one of us each and every day of our lives, wherever we go. That is what Christian life is. It's a daily walk held in the astounding promise of God. Promises are at the heart of Christian life, and what a promise we have in our reading from the book of Revelation today. See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. See, I am making all things new. This is where the story goes, says this final book of the Bible. This is where it's all ultimately headed. Not chaos, not destruction, not God giving up on this world that human beings seem to find endlessly creative ways to make a mess of. It is not headed for a terrible and tragic ending, but for wholeness, freshness, a mending of all that is broken. I know we're always told not to peek at the end of the book that we're reading, but this is an exception. You should peek here, anytime, because the ending is that good, that joyful. It's an ending to always keep in mind, God descending to the earth in love, drying the tears of the creation, making all things new. As an aside, I hope you do notice here that at the very ending of the Bible, the final movement is not people being whisked up to heaven right? Lots of popular theology imagines that's how it all ends, with the faithful being snatched off to some otherworldly paradise. But that's not what the Bible actually says. Instead, it says that God comes here, that God comes down to earth to be at home among mortals once and for all. It's actually very on-brand for God, you know. That's what God has always done, bending to the creation with words, with prophets, with acts of deliverance, and finally with the incarnation, with God becoming one of us. So it's no wonder that the story ends with God bending low one more time, with God fully embracing this world with the grace and newness that it so longs for. So that's the promise of Revelation, the promise at the very end of the whole Bible. 
healing, wholeness, and end to hurt and wrong. It's right there in our reading today. Sounds almost too good to be true, right? I think it's easy for us to hear this passage as the dreamy language of some distant time when they didn't know anything about the sorts of real challenges that our world is facing today. When they didn't know about the catastrophic damage that can be caused by the whims of a dictator or about people fleeing their homes in fear or about drought and hunger and worry and need. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more, huh, John? You've got no idea. We might want to say something like that, except that John did have an idea. He knew plenty about mourning and crying and pain. We're not sure who exactly John of Patmos was, but he knew plenty about imperial power and the dangers of life on the edge of things. Revelation was composed on the isolated island of Patmos, where its author had been sent into exile by Roman authorities, likely as a result of proclaiming and promoting the Christian faith. I recently returned from spending a week in Rome meeting with other pastors who are serving international churches in Europe and the Middle East. You hear about Rome all the time in the New Testament, of course. Roman emperors and governors are named here and there throughout the Gospels. Centurions just kind of show up every once in a while. Paul writes to the church in Rome and eventually ends up imprisoned there. So I read about Rome all the time in the Bible, and I speak about it all the time in sermons, but it had been a long time since I'd actually been there. And I found myself reminded time and time again in this visit of just how overwhelmingly powerful this empire was in the time of Jesus and the early church. You can't miss that power when you see something like the Colosseum, which I imagine many of you have seen yourselves. It was inaugurated in the year 80, right around the time much of the New Testament was written, including the book of Revelation. And even in ruins, it towers over the neighborhood like a modern-day football stadium. Sure, it was a place for entertainment, but the entertainment often involved persons identified as criminals being fed to wild animals. The building, which could hold up to 50,000 people, again, we're talking a big place, was a clear demonstration of the power of the emperor and those in charge. And the events that took place there served to underline that order. Mess with our system, said Rome in its laws and its customs and its religion and its entertainment and even in its buildings, and you will pay the consequences. This is the world that John was writing in which John was writing his revelation, his apocalypse, his revealing of the way things really are. He was writing about Jesus as Lord in a time when only the emperor was granted that title. He was writing about the power of God's love in a time when all other powers could look pretty flimsy next to Rome. He was writing about God putting an end to death once and for all in a time when confessing Jesus Christ could get you exiled or even put to death. John knew plenty about mourning and crying and pain. There's no question about that. And still he proclaimed something different. Still he wrote down this vision. I think it's important to keep that early context in mind because it reminds us that the promises of God have never been logical. Christianity was formed in a time of great uncertainty and danger. And this faith has always been about leaning into promises, even and especially when their fulfillment seems distant or far off. 
It has always been about trusting what God can and will yet do in this world that God so loves. So if the vision of God drying all tears, mending all that's broken, making all things new, sounds a little far from our reality today, I would say take heart, because it's always been that way. In an interview several years ago, Archbishop Desmond Tutu was asked how, with all the pain that he's witnessed in his life, all the injustice and hurt, he could persist in saying, as he always did, that God was in charge. Well, he said with a laugh, I have sometimes said to God, it would be nice for you to make it slightly more obvious that you're in charge. (laughs) From our limited perspective, God's promise of a world made whole can seem awfully distant at times, far from obvious or logical, which is just one more reason why faith is not meant to be undertaken alone. It's meant to be engaged together. In the community, we remind one another of that vision of an end to mourning and crying and pain, and we animate it with our words and our songs and our spirits. In the community, we encourage one another to keep that vision alive even when it seems far off. In the community, we challenge one another to take steps toward it, to work for healing and for justice here and now. In the community, we lean into God's present promise together, not giving into despair, but holding on to hope. Christian faith is a daily walk held in the promise of God, but it is not one to be taken alone. It's a walk to be shared. So we are all gathered here for worship this morning, and we are all gathered around for Marcus's baptism. We are all here to claim the wonder of God's love. We are all here to drink from the spring of the water of life. We're all here to look for the fulfillment of God's justice. We're all here to offer ourselves to that vision and to what it asks of us. We are all here to lean into God's promise together. And that's as it should be, friends, because our God is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one whose words are trustworthy and true, this day and always. Thanks be to God. Amen.